Morning, everyone. We are in the book of Hebrews, and we are looking at chapter 8 this morning. And as we begin chapter 8, I want to tell you a little story of uh, when I got in trouble at school one day. And uh, I could probably tell you a thousand different stories about me getting in trouble at school one day. But I was probably about uh, 10 years old or so and um, got into a fight. And I knew that the principal had called my mom and talked to her. And so I knew when I got home, I was going to get in trouble, major trouble. This was a a major problem. I was suspended for a couple days. Again, I was super young. And um, that plays into the story. Because when I got home, I ran immediately to my mother's roll-top desk. You ever see those old wooden roll-top desks where you kind of roll it up and uh, you fit everything in there, then you roll it down? I hid inside that roll-top desk, rolling the top down. That was many years ago when I was smaller. And I remember my mom and grandma, because I lived with my mom and grandma, I remember them going through the house because they heard the door open, they knew I was home, and I ran and hid under that roll top of the roll top desk, and I remember them going through the house, Tim, come here, Tim, come here, I could hear it. They would come right up to the desk, Tim, where are you, Tim, where are you, we know you're home, and I just hid in that desk until dinner time. It probably was a good hour and a half or so, and I know that if my mom listens to this, she's gonna know exactly where I was hiding, because I never told her where I was hiding, because I did it two other times uh, within that process. So now I've let out my hiding spot. If you have a roll-top desk, I might be in there. Who knows? But I remember the fear that overwhelmed me when I got in trouble and I was being called out. That idea of, oh, no, I just did something wrong. And if you remember, Adam and Eve had that same scenario in the Garden of Eden. They had done something wrong, and in their mind, they could have come up with two alternatives, two answers, two questions to that, oh no, I did something wrong. The first one is God is going to get me. I did something wrong, God is going to get me. My mom is going to kill me, my dad is going to kill me. Oh no, I did something wrong. I'm going to get punished. The other way of looking at that dilemma, that problem, that sin, oh no, I did something wrong, is I need to go tell God about it. That question, oh no, I did something wrong, and your response of one of those two things, God's going to get me, or I need to go tell God about it, is the essence, it is the heart, it is the foundation, it is indeed the implication and application of the gospel. If you ever wanted to know what is the big deal about the gospel, it's being able to say, B, when you've done something wrong, i got to go tell God. The gospel inspires us, persuades us, motivates us, comforts us, engulfs us in a safety net of, I've done something wrong. I've got to go tell God about it. Instead of reacting in fear and angst and worry and and doubt and depression and fear and hiding. When the gospel is not present, you can only respond with A. I'm going to get it. This is it. This is the big one. I've got no other chances. I'm done. 
But the gospel enters our lives and changes us radically to where when we've done something wrong, we respond with, I can go tell God about it. In fact, I need to tell God about it. That's the great difference that the gospel makes. That is the great difference between the law and the gospel. That is the great difference between legalism and grace. That is the great difference between terror and love. That is the great difference between guilt and forgiveness. That is the great difference between what a human priest can offer in the book of Hebrews and what Jesus has to offer. That is the great difference between terror and hope and love between hopelessness and hope. The great difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. How you answer that question. Now we have already seen in chapter 7 that the believer, the Christian, is freed from the old covenant from the old way of doing things because it was inferior. It was not good enough. It was never intended to be the end all and be all. Follow all these rules. Do this, 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 and this. It was never intended. It was intended to show that you were unable to do it. Not that you could do it or achieve some of it. It was to persuade you you can't do it. You can't fulfill the dietary laws, the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, the judicial laws. You can't fulfill the Ten Commandments. You can't fill one of the two greatest ones. It was to show you that you needed a new way of dealing with God, a new way of answering that question. Oh, no, I've done something wrong. Now, a covenant, because we're going to be looking at covenants specifically in chapter 8, I want to make sure that we have a really good working definition of what is a covenant. We use it a lot. We talk about the old covenant and new covenant. So a covenant in its most basic form is a relationship that God sets up with us and guarantees by his word. It's a relationship that God sets up with us and guarantees by his word. There is no simpler understanding of a covenant than that. So when we talk about an old covenant, God set up something in the Old Testament, in the olden days before the coming of Christ, and he guaranteed it by his word. And in the New Testament, it's the same thing. He set up a relationship with us through Christ, and he's the one who guarantees it. He never asks us to guarantee it. He never asks us to pay our end, to pay up, to fulfill our role in the New Testament. Jesus fulfills our role in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we were unable to fulfill our role. And you know how I know we were unable to fulfill our role under the Old Testament way of doing things? Because God said, you can't do it. I'm sending Jesus to accomplish it on your behalf. You can't do the Old Covenant, Old Testament living. You can't. It was never meant to be the way of salvation. It was meant to point you that you need salvation outside of yourself, outside of the temple and tabernacle and rules and regulations and laws and sacrifices, outside of that, you needed something different. You needed the New Testament and the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you 
from your sin. You needed a change in which you now could approach God saying, hey God, I did something wrong, we need to talk. Instead of cowering in fear and hiding and giving excuses and blaming others for your faults, for your sins, you own up to it without fear because of Christ. He took that sin, that fear, that angst, that worry, that guilt away through the gospel. Now, in Hebrews chapter 8, there's two basic sections, verses 1 through 8, and I'm going to tag on verse 13 because that's become very apparent, and then kind of 8 through the rest of that through verse 12. Two really good sections, and that first section is talking about how the Old Covenant is obsolete. It's not that it wasn't important. It's not that the Old Covenant and the Old Testament doesn't have value even for us today, but it's obsolete. It no longer has power over you. It no longer should make you feel guilty. It no longer should make you feel, I need to do this, 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 and this. No, 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 no. And we explain it in those first eight verses well, verse 1 through 7, but also a little bit of verse 8 and then verse 13. So let me just read this. And if you ever wondered what the book of Hebrews was all about, if you've missed some of the messages at the very beginning of the first seven chapters, the first few verses of chapter 8 summarize it perfectly for us. The author says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. So he's talking about, now this is the basic conclusion of everything we're talking about here in the book of Hebrews. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The whole sum of Hebrews is summarized in those two verses that, hey, we have such a high priest that he is such a perfect high priest He's actually sat down. He doesn't have to do any more work. It's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. There's no more for him to do. He does not need to be sacrificed again. He doesn't have to sacrifice on his behalf. You don't have to sacrifice. It's ended. He's finished. And he's finished in such a glorious and good way. He's actually ruling and reigning. He's seated next to the God, King, Almighty himself, the great Father of all creation, He's seated on the throne, a place of sovereignty, dominion, power, authority, kingship, royalty. And he's seated there. He's seated because he's finished. There is nothing left to do in order to build a relationship with God. He did it. He's guaranteed the entire thing through his son, Jesus Christ. Not man. Not man. Man loves to invent ways to draw near to God. Man loves to create ways to show themselves better than others. Man loves to create ways to judge. Man loves to create ways to be prideful and arrogant over others. Man loves to make themselves the center of attention the center of power, the center of wisdom, 
the center of decision-making, the center of entertainment, the center of life. Not when it comes to a relationship with God. Man is not center. It's not about man. It's not about my feelings, not about my comfort, not about my hopes, wishes, desires, or plans. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about your likes or dislikes, your hopes, your dreams, your plans. It's not about what you have, what you don't have. It's not about us. Our relationship with God is based not on mankind. No rules that we can invent draw us closer to God. No authority structures that we put into place can draw us closer to God. No amount of giving, serving, tithing, no amount of talents, using them or not using them, no amount of volunteering or not volunteering, no amount of attending a service or not attending a service, no amount of how much you read your Bible every day or if you don't read it at all, that's not in the cards for how your relationship with God is started and maintained and guaranteed. It is set up by his word and guaranteed by his word. And the guarantee of God's word to us is sending his son, not man, but his son, to do everything that the old covenant was unable to accomplish. He did it perfectly. Continues to say in verse 3, again, something that we already saw in verse, in chapter 7, for every high priest, he's talking about the priesthood after the order of Aaron and the Levites, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, true, Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since these are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And it's Mount Sinai. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as a covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the Old Testament was sufficient to gain a salvation relationship with God, there'd be no need for Jesus. If sacrifices were sufficient, Jesus would not have to come. If the law was sufficient, Jesus would not have to have come. If the high priestly role was sufficient, Jesus would not have to come. If the temple was sufficient, Jesus would not have to come. If sacrificing bulls and goats and grain offerings was sufficient, Jesus would never have to come. If obeying the Ten Commandments was sufficient, Jesus would never have to come. If celebrating the feasts and ceremonies and rituals of the Old Testament were sufficient, then Jesus would never have had to come. Jesus came because the old was never designed to make us right with God. Never. So there is no reason, Christian, to ever go back to 
those things that were not sufficient to save and make them part of your life today. There's no benefit. No benefit. Jesus ended the old covenant. Ended it because it was not sufficient to save. In fact, he says that again at the beginning of verse 8, for he finds fault with them. Jesus finds fault. God finds fault with the old covenant. He set it up, yes. He established it, yes. It was perfect, yes, in the sense that he gave it, and it was true and right. But it was never designed to be the end-all and be-all of a relationship with him. Rules, regulations, feasts, festivals, and the temple. Never designed. It was a copy of what the heavens provided. It was just a glimpse into what Jesus would provide. It was never an end to itself. Because he says in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, what's that word in your scripture? Obsolete. Jesus made the first covenant obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I know that there can be a strong pull to tradition, a strong pull to a sense of history and belonging that the Old Testament rituals and celebrations and tabernacle and temple stuff can bring. I know that it can be somewhat exciting to see the pomp and circumstances that happen there. All the, the stuff kind of makes you feel like you're part of something bigger. I get it. But believer, Christian, you have something far greater than the temple. You have something far greater than the rituals and sacrifices. You have something greater than the ceremonies and the holy days. You have something greater than the law. Do you know what you have? You know what you have. And I don't mean this to sound sappy, but you have Jesus. What else do you need to make your relationship with God the Father greater, stronger, more intimate, more forgiving, more filled with hope than Jesus. You have all that the Father can give you in aces in Jesus. You don't need the regulations of the old covenant to guide you, comfort you, or structure your thinking and actions. You have Jesus. The old covenant, according to God's word, is obsolete. And it is obsolete and fading away and should be distant to us. We shouldn't be ignorant of it, but it should not guide our steps. It should not control our thinking or actions. Because the new covenant is founded on better promises. And that's what the second section of Hebrews 8 talks about, the promises of the new covenant that the Old Testament already knew about. This isn't new news. It should have driven them to their knees going, I need something better than this. 
greater than this. And God says, I know you do. And I'm giving you hints all through the Old Testament about this Savior, promised Messiah, anointed one, Christ, the one who would crush the serpent's head, the one who would free you ultimately, better than Moses did, better than David did, better than Elijah did, better than everyone who had come before him, even better than John the Baptist, even better than all the high priests, even better than all the temple sacrifices and ceremonies, better than all the law, better than all the Pharisees and Sadducees, better than all the Levites, better than all the tribes, better than Abraham himself, the father of faith. And even better than the only one in the Old Testament that was better than Abraham, Melchizedek better than even him. Now what the author does here in verse 8 all the way through verse 12 is quote Jeremiah 31. Again, the idea of the new covenant, the idea of the obsolete nature of the old covenant was not new to the Israelites. It should not have been new. It is one of those things that baffled Jesus when Nicodemus came to him and Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is totally confused. He's like, you know, I didn't take anatomy in school, but I know how a baby's born. How do I go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus doesn't address that. He says, how can you be a teacher of the law and not know these things? It should be basic that you need to be born again of the Spirit that you need to have a heart relationship with God. It's been there all through the Old Testament. It's just what happened is it's a lot easier to follow rules and regulations and make yourself feel good than deal with sin head on, pleading for forgiveness from a God who is merciful, from a God who is long-suffering, a God who is patient, a God in whom we can say, I just messed up really big time for the hundredth time this week. We need to talk. So, Jeremiah 31 says the following, starting in verse 8, for he finds fault with them, that is the old covenant, the old way of doing things, when he says, quote, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On that day, oh, on the day, um, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. What was that covenant that God established with the Old Testament Jewish nation at that time, the Israelites? It was very simple. Do this and live. How well did that work for them? How well did that work for them? How many of them are still living today? Zero. You do this and live. You see why it is obsolete? You see why it needs to fade away? Because no one 
except the Lord Jesus Christ is able to do this and live. He says, so I showed them my covenant. They didn't continue in my covenant, and I showed them no concern, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They weren't able to do it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And now he steps into four amazing promises that God makes in the new covenant that is guaranteed by his word and sealed by the work of Jesus Christ. Four guarantees that are yours. Four promises that are yours. Four things that you can take to him every single time you say, "Uh uh-oh, I really messed up God. And instead of hiding and blaming and twisting what I did, I'm going to own up to it. And I'm going to talk to you about it. Because these four things guide me to heaven. First of all, a new nature, he says at the end of verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. See, the laws are not just external obedience factors of I do this, 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 and this, and I can measure based on how many boxes I check, yes, I obeyed it. Instead, it's a change in my nature. No longer am I bound legally to all these rules and regulations, but my heart loves them. I love God's holiness. I love truth. I love God, and I love my neighbor. And that's part of who I am now. I don't need a rule or a law or a commandment to tell me that. God's changed me to where it's written inside of me. It is part of who I am. It's a new nature. And what we call that new nature in the New Testament is born again, saving faith, regenerated, gone from death to life, new life, a follower of Christ, someone who has been changed, someone who has been raised again. And so the law and truth are not discarded. But I can say with David, all through Psalm 119, the longest psalm in Scripture, that repeats countless times, I love your law. When was the last time someone loved law? Loved obeying God loved signs that said how fast you can go, how you must stop, how you must merge and yield. They're not going fast enough, you don't have to yield, but you still do. Loving it, knowing it's part of your nature and character to forgive. I don't need a law to do that. God's written it on my heart. He's changed me to the point to where I want to be obedient. I want to follow his command because God's changed me to love them. Second promise of why the old covenant is obsolete and fading away and no longer binding is because of the rest of verse 10 in which it says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, track with me here for a second. Wasn't Israel always God's people? 
Isn't that kind of what Israelites and even Jews today will say? Well, we're God's people. We're God's chosen people if they're really spiritual. But yet God is saying in the new covenant, there is going to be a new type of relationship that God has with his people. Not based on genetics, not based on hereditary lines, not based on your name or where you live. Because all of that Jesus dismissed and supplanted time and time again. He told the Pharisees to where they wanted to stone him, it doesn't matter your praises because I can take rocks and make them into children of Abraham. You're not special just because of your genetic makeup. Not at all. You see, I think God moves into this moment in which Jesus reveals to his disciples and reveals to us that our relationship with God is one of father and child. It's one of being adopted into his family to where we can cry out, Abba, which is our equivalent of saying what? Daddy. Who gets to call you daddy if you're a guy or mommy if you're a girl? Your children. You don't let strangers call you daddy and mommy. You let your children have that intimate relationship. So God says you can have an intimate relationship as daddy. And you are adopted into my family and I treat you as a son and daughter. Not just simply a follower, but a son and daughter grafted into the promises. So the promise of the new covenant is based on a new, greater understanding of what that relationship with God is like. You know, we have a relationship with God not because we're American, right? We know that. We have a relationship with God because Jesus guarantees that relationship by his word and his actions regardless of what national flag we stand under, including Israel. Thirdly, third promise that we have that we can take to the bank, third promise of why the new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete and why it disappears and should be vanquished from our thinking and adherence, says in verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. See, God's talking about a different type of experience here. He's talking about an experience-based religion. Not a rules-based religion, but an experience-based religion to where we each can have this experience with God, and I don't need to depend on you for that experience. I can go right to God for that experience. I can go right to God for that relationship. That's the expounding majesty of the new covenant. Because under the old covenant, if you wanted to grow near to God, you couldn't do that on your own. You couldn't. There was only one guy in all of Israel one day a year that could make a sacrifice and go into the Holy of Holies. You had to go to a priest to forgive your sins. I know that sounds weird. What? You had to make sacrifices on an altar with blood and the smell of burning flesh to make yourself. You could not do that on your own. You needed a priest to do that. 
But in the New Testament, that barrier, that insufficient method was gone because Jesus accomplished it on your behalf in full, and you can go right to God. One of the beauties of the New Testament, one of the beauties of the Reformation is this idea called the priesthood of all believers. And it is a radical idea, especially in Roman Catholicism, that everyone is entitled to go directly to God on their own through Christ. You did not need another mediator or priest to stand in the way. You could go in the quietness of a night or in the busyness of a day, you can go directly to God and say, God, we need to talk. I need to praise you and I need to be changed. You do not need a priest to stand in between you and God anymore. That old way of, not with a special prayer or reciting a special creed, you go to him directly and confess and he forgives. It's a relationship and an experience that is personal. And then lastly, the fourth thing, the fourth thing that God promises that gives you an understanding of how obsolete the old covenant is and how necessary a new covenant is, is found in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It's almost as if God has a new record-keeping system. Our record-keeping system before God is nothing is credited to our account. No charges, no guilt, no shame. Yes, we sin, but we have forgiveness in that sin. When we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us all in righteousness. We're right with him through Christ. No record-keeping of right and wrongs. It's done. The old system had a lot of record-keeping. People boasted how much they kept it, how much they were dedicated to it, how much they obeyed it, how often they obeyed it. And it was all pride-based sense of superiority over others. Jesus abolishes that and says, all you need is to come to me. And before the Father, I will plead your case that you are free from sin because of me. So as a final take-home thought, I want us to ask that question of ourselves once again. We're in a situation where we know we have sinned against God. I've done something wrong. How do you respond to that now? Do you still respond with fear and guilt and shame and hiding and blaming and excuses and think to yourself, oh no, he's going to get me. He's going to punish me. I know he's going to. Oh. Or do you say, through the gospel and through the new covenant, are you able to say, I know I've done wrong. I need to call and talk to my dad now and make it right. That is the great difference of relating to God based on laws or based on grace. And having been someone who's lived both in his life, I'm telling you, 
there is so much freedom and mercy and love and compassion and hope when you run to the Father and say, I gotta tell you what I did. When you try to hide, there's nothing there but terror, nothing there but fear, nothing there but guilt, nothing there but the law. And the law is not going to bring you comfort. What's gonna bring you comfort in this life and the next is a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ in which you say, I need you. You're here to harm me or punish me. You're here to refine me and you're here to forgive me through Christ. Let me pray. Our great Father in heaven, Lord, we appeal to you and to you alone through Jesus Christ, his completed work and his completed promises. And we ask you, Father, that as hard as it may be that we get out of the routine of fearing you when we have disobeyed you, when we have committed sin, and that we replace that fear with love, knowing that when we come to you, Father, you are able to cleanse us, you are able to fix us. Help us, Father, to relate to you based on the gospel, not based on the obsolete, fading away, old way of doing things. But let us relate to you now in spirit and in truth, in faith and assurance that you are our God, that we are your people, that you are our Father, and we are your children, that you are our daddy, and we are your kids. All through Christ and through Christ alone. In his name, all of God's people said, amen. Would you guys stand with us for this last song? I'm going to read John 6, 68 through 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's sing this song about the greatness of the Father that we worship, the closeness that we get to encounter because of what Jesus did for us on the cross.
God afresh and anew this morning because his mercy and his grace is new this morning his loving kindness is yours his promises of a new life and walking in it through the strength of Jesus Christ is yours so I pray that he will lead you and guide you and 
protect you this week. That he will overwhelm you with a sense of praising him and studying his word, making it yours, not just for a moment, but for a lifetime. Go in peace.